Thank you, Tom, for reading God's word. Uh, let's open in a quick word of prayer, shall we? Father, we, we know we need your help, your strength to hear from you, to hear from your word. And so we ask by your spirit, um, give us ears to hear, eyes that see, and open our hearts to what you would want to teach us this morning from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew. I'm a pastor here on staff, and uh, it's great to be here with you this early Labor Day weekend. I can't believe that uh, September starts tomorrow. Um, someone told me, yeah, the older you get, the faster time goes. And I said, well, thanks. That's really encouraging. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to start off this morning um, by giving you some tips on, on uh, being a new pastor. And uh, I know most of you aren't pastors, and most of you have no desire to be pastors, which is fine. I don't take offense at that. Um, but just in case, okay, just in case, here's a tip. Now, there's one question you need, to, you need to be able to answer without even thinking about it if you're a pastor. Can you, there's one question. One question that almost everyone you meet for the first time is going to ask you. And I remember as a, young, as a young pastor, when I got this question for the first time, I was uh, sitting on a plane on a flight out west to go see my folks or something like that. And uh, it was back in 2010 when I first came on staff here at Christ Community. And uh, I sat next to one of those people, you know, one of those people that likes to talk on the plane. Um, <laughs> you might be one of those people, that's fine. Uh, but I, I sat next to one of those people. And, uh, <laughs> right. And he asked me, it was just a common question, right? So what do you do? And uh, I said, and this is, you know, this is, I was proud. This was the first time really uh, I've, I've been able to answer this way in my life. And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, you mean like a priest? And I, and I said, yeah, kind of. I don't wear any special robes. Sometimes I wear a name tag and sometimes I tuck my shirt in, but it's like a priest. Um, and then he asked, and here, here it comes. This is the question every time. So how big is your church that you serve at? How big is your church? And one of those things you learn pretty quickly as a newer pastor is how important church size, it seems, to almost everyone. <laughs> Go to a conference, catch up with a friend from school, start working with another church on a shared project, something like that. Uh, the first question is almost always the same. Well, how big, how big is your church? How many people will go there? And I don't know, maybe it's the same for you guys here at Christ Community. When people, you tell people where you go and they're not familiar with it, they, they immediately ask, well, how, how many people go there? Well, how, how big is that? And I think it's an honest question. There are worse questions people could ask, right? Um, People ask, uh, but there's a subtle danger to this question. The danger is, uh, I think, that it implies that the purpose of our church, that the primary purpose of our church, is to get more people to come here. And uh, that is important. The more the merrier, okay? I'm not complaining about that, but that's not primarily what we're about. It's not. That's not the first thing. I don't think that's the biblical picture, and I don't think that that's Christ's community's vision for why we're here, why we exist. And uh, that's why, what I want to talk to you more about this morning. So last Sunday, if you're here, uh, Pastor Tom kicked off a three-part series. This is, this is number two, is where we're heading as a church. Uh, what are we passionate about as a church? What do we want to focus on? What are we all about? What makes us tick? And uh, we aren't asking all these questions in a self-serving way. We all need to know this stuff. This is a family conversation for us in many ways. And if you're new here this morning, uh, this is a perfect time to be here. Let me reassure you, you get to see us for who we really are. <laughs> we 
when we're, we think we're, where we think we're strong, where we want to grow, uh, how we think we can do better. And uh, I thought about it this week, and you know, the analogy is when, you, when you're a guest uh, at a family's house for dinner, when you're a guest, usually you get like the best recipe they have, right? Uh, you get the meat and potatoes of who we want to be every day, day in, day out, who we want to be as a church. So I'm glad that you're here, if you're new. So last week, Tom talked about uh, how we want to be a church that multiplies churches, and we kind of introduced this graphic. We want to be a church that multiplies churches. We'll never have too many churches. That was the big idea last week. Uh, we announced that we're launching a fifth campus, praise God, because we, are, we believe so strongly that this city will never have too many churches, that Kansas City will never have too many churches, and we want to be a part of that. But this morning, our question is, well, what do those churches need? <laughs> what do those churches need more than anything? They don't just need more people. To thrive and to do what churches are supposed to do, churches don't just need people, they need more disciples. Disciples. They need multiplying disciples. So multiplying churches need multiplying disciples. And just so you know, next week, Tom's going to teach on multiplying leaders. That's kind of our last big idea. Christ's community needs more disciples. This is who we want to be. We want to be a multiplying churches that multiply and encourage and produce more disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great tagline, but what in the world is a disciple? It's a word maybe you've heard before or even used before, but what, what is it? And am I one of them? Are you one of them? Are you interested in being one? How does Christ's community help me become a disciple, right? Oh, I'm glad you asked all those questions because that's what we're going to talk about. Because our vision for this comes straight, it comes straight from the Bible, you guys. That what is a disciple and how does a disciple grow? Well, you see it in our text this morning that Tom just read. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Turn there now if you haven't turned there yet. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. It can be a harder one to find, so don't be afraid to use your table of contents. This is, this is the Apostle Paul writing to churches about what he thinks they should be all about. That's the big idea of this passage. He's actually praying for these people in this passage, praying that they would be disciples of Jesus. He doesn't use the word disciple, but the idea is all over the passage. And in a sense, because this is God's timeless word, the Bible is still praying these words over us right now, over our church, over you and over me, that these would be the kind of people we are becoming. And so here is Paul's prayer. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, a few words jump out at you as you read this text. A few key themes is kind of the way I've looked at it here about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the first thing you see about being a disciple is actually surprising. It's counterintuitive. Uh, at least it was for me. Uh, when you hear the word disciple, 
What comes to mind? Right? Disciple. Sometimes when I hear that word, I, th- I think of like a monk or something. Like someone who's really serious and very disciplined and very rigid and very re- maybe reclusive and they eat bugs all day or something, you know, something like that. Um, and it's like, you know, when I thought about that, it's like, so we want to be a church that encourages those kinds of people because that actually sounds terrible to me. Um, God bless those people wherever they are. But uh, the funny thing is, the funny thing is that that is not at all what Paul has in mind. That's not what he describes. The first thing Paul highlights in this passage about what a disciple is, is this. He says, a disciple, first and foremost, grasps, comprehends God's love. It's as simple as that. They grasp God's love. And a disciple may be many things, depending on their personality and and who they are, but they must first be a love-struck person. Fundamentally, a disciple is someone who understands that when God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world, to die on the cross on, on our behalf, it was an act of supreme love. And not just love, but love for you. Love for me, personally. But disciples don't just know this love intellectually. Paul prays that we have more and more strength. Uh, they, they knew of God's love when he prayed this, but he asked for more and more strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge that you could never know enough about. That's verse 18. Comprehend. Even that word is weak in English. Uh, The Greek word here is almost, uh, it's physical and almost violent. Disciples wrestle this idea of God's love out of their heads and into every part of their lives. More and more into every part of who they are. And they comprehend more and more the height and the depth and the width and the length of this love. They know its dimensions more and more. And I remember a friend in our church who came to faith uh, here, uh, first encountered this love in many ways here at Christ Community. And I remember when she shared a huge moment for her, when she uh, understood this idea of discipleship in a brand new way. And this, this young woman uh, struggled with her image and uh, struggled with an eating disorder, which is not uncommon, and it was a devastating cycle for her. And she shared once, actually during a service here at Christ Community, how God spoke to her on the bathroom floor one night. I I don't think it was audible, but she heard this loud and clear. You are my beloved daughter. You don't need to do this anymore. And though she still struggled, it it was not easy. In that moment, Christ's love, it it moved into a new place in her heart. It moved into her pain. It moved into her brokenness and it it redeemed it. And something changed. She comprehended it not simply as an intellectual truth, but as a personal one. God loves, yes, but he loves me. He loves me. And a disciple knows God's love. A disciple knows that God's love lifts you straight to heaven when you trust in his sacrifice for you on the cross. That's how high God's love is. And the disciple knows that to the deepest, darkest parts of you that even you don't know about, God loves you. Past your sin. That's how deep his love is. And a disciple knows no matter who you are, your baggage, where you come from, what you've done, Christ accepts you. His sacrifice is effective for you. That is how wide his love is. 
And a disciple knows that from the beginning all the way till the end, God promises to love us and to keep us. That is the promise of Scripture. That is how long his love is. A disciple grasps this love, encounters this love constantly, puts it on like armor every day, and pushes it to the deepest, darkest parts of who they are. That's first and foremost what a disciple is. The world needs, Christ's community needs more people like that. Because a disciple does two incredibly important things when they grasp God's love. And I want to apply these to us. When we talk about multiplying disciples, how do we do that? Uh, This is what we mean. First, disciples take God's love and they practice it in the church community. They practice it there. Paul prays, if if you noticed, I want you to grasp God's love together with all the saints. Okay? It's a community project. God's love is always practiced in community. And the Bible is filled with what has been called the, the, the one another commands. Uh, love one another. Forgive one another. Carry one another's burdens. Weep with one another. Celebrate with one another. Care for, pray for, live for one another. Why is that? Well, because God's love is always grasped best in community. That's just the way it is. Disciples practice God's love in community. And that's why we really want as many people here as possible to be in a community group. And I know I've, I've hit this so many times up here, but I'm always going to mention this, okay? There's, that's where anyone and everyone can grow as a disciple of Jesus, can better grasp God's love. It happens in community. And the easiest way to find that kind of community here is a community group. And we believe in this so much. I'm going to be out in the lobby after this sermon. Usually I just go hide under my desk. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I am going to be at a table out here in the lobby after the service uh, to help orient you on how to find a group, answer any questions you have. If you're interested in all, please stop by. I'm going to be out there uh, right after that. Our, our community groups launch September 14th, which is a few Sundays from now. That week they launch. So it's a great time to check it out and learn more. So please stop by. And you can also go to our website, uh, our main website, ccfc.org slash group search. There's a search tool there to see what groups are available, where they meet, what time, any questions you might have. So please check that out. Because disciples get better with God's love when they practice it in community. It's just how it works. And they also share, second thing, they share God's love with just about everyone. They practice it in community and they share it with just about everyone. And Paul starts this prayer by reminding us that God is the father of all. Every name, every person, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic class, everyone. God's love is for everyone. And we are supposed to share it with everyone. That, and that doesn't mean we beat people over the head with it. But we live and we speak and we work with God's love and the infinite value of every individual at the forefront. And we invite people into this discipleship thing, just like God invited us into it in the first place. And we want to get better at this as a church. This is hard. This is hard to do. And in our next sermon series, we're going to take a look at at Jesus' approach to sharing God's love with people, with all kinds of people, in the book of John. And I can't wait. It's going to be really exciting. There is no one better to learn about sharing God's love than Jesus. <laughs> so we're going to look at how he did it. Disciples are always sharing God's love with just about everyone because they know God's love is for everyone. 
And that's who we want to be at Christ's community more and more. We want to grasp God's love, to practice it together, and to love our city with it. Disciples grasp, they get God's love. Fundamentally, this, this is what being a disciple is. And the more you grasp God's love, the more you ask for God's power. And this is our second our second uh, thing Paul teaches here about disciples. Disciples ask for God's transforming power. And more specifically, they ask for God's transforming power first. It's one of their biggest prayers, one of their first prayers. Not first God's comfort, but God's transforming power. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Paul is praying this prayer, as we said, over several churches. We're pretty sure this is a circular letter. It means it went to multiple churches kind of in a row. And these churches were all under persecution and suffering and hardship in a way that I think is very difficult for us to understand in our modern uh, Western context. And most of us have never experienced anything like what these Christians were experiencing. And Paul himself makes it clear he wrote this letter from prison. He's in prison right now. Uh, He says that in in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. And uh, we haven't yet heard Tom preach a sermon from prison, though he's come close a few times. Um, But... (laughs) That's another story. <laughs> I'll, let him, I'll let him clean that up next week. But um, <laughs> the point is, these were incredibly difficult circumstances under which to be a disciple. There's no doubt about it. Incredibly difficult circumstances. But Paul, when he prays for these people, he does not ask for protection from disease, even though that was a huge concern. He does not ask for deliverance from prison. He does not ask for freedom from persecution. He says nothing, in fact, about their circumstances at all in his prayer. Instead, he asks God for strength and for the Spirit's power in the inner being to change their very hearts, to change their character, to transform them by God's power into faithful and loving disciples, not comfortable and well-off people. You see, that is Paul's prayer for us too, to ask more and more for God's power and strength to change us first, not to change our circumstances but to change us first. And here's why. It's not because God is aloof to your circumstances. That is not true. That's not what I'm saying. The life and death of Jesus Christ proves that God identifies with and understands your suffering better than you do. But Paul knows, and God promises, that if we have God's love, and it's increasing, and we have God's power, and it's increasing, then his resources and we will become the kind of people, the kind of disciples that can handle any circumstance. Disciples ask more and more for God's transforming power in any circumstance and less and less for more favorable circumstances. And when you define disciples that way, I begin to see that we have a lot of incredible disciples here. We really do. There are people here who are experiencing pain and suffering and loss that I don't think I can even imagine. You are walking through difficulty and you are hoping and praying that God shows up, that he changes your circumstances, but you're ending your prayers this way. God, even if you don't change this or take this away or heal this person, I love you and I'm with you and I trust you. And uh, I'm going to try not to get too emotional here, but we, Christ Leewood Campus, we lost a dear friend and brother this weekend. Uh, too early. It's been very painful for that family in a way that I don't think I can imagine right now. 
but one of our pastors before this young man passed away uh, went to visit with him when he was very sick uh, to pray with him and to just, you know, be there for him. And uh, this pastor was telling me the story this week of, you know, he went there to pray and he found himself talking more about his own life with this young man because he just kept probing, well, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What can I do for you? And, uh, you know, pastor left having been prayed for. He thought, wait, wait a minute, that's not, that's God's power. That is a person who has experienced God's power in his life. You can endure anything. You don't think less of yourself. You think of yourself less. <laughs> That's what Lewis said of disciples. And, and this young man on his, in many ways, his deathbed, blessing someone else. That is power. That's power. You're always asking God to transform you when you're a disciple and to free you from the things in your life that threaten to diminish his power in you. Disciples understand, and this is important, disciples understand that the primary obstacle to God's love and power and presence in your life is not your circumstances. It's not. It's your sin. It's your disobedience. It's your darkness. Our real need is not comfort and ease, but transformation. That's Paul's prayer. That's why he prays this way. That's the Bible's view of a growing disciple, and that's who we want to be. That's who I want to be. Many of us come to God and we come to church in the first place because there was a life circumstance uh, that brought us here. There was a problem that we didn't know how to solve. We were desperate for help. I'm there. That's how I came to church. I was scared and alone and depressed. God meets us there. The church, if we're doing our job right, should meet us there. But neither should leave us there. Eventually, and more and more, we should be more concerned with being transformed into people who live and act and think like Jesus. We come on Sunday morning not to be entertained, but to be transformed in worship and in community and under God's word. We go to small group not to have fun with people, though it should be fun, but we don't go because it's fun. We go to be challenged and encouraged and held accountable by other disciples on the same path as we are. And we serve and we give our time and our resources not because we want recognition or we think that there's some special blessing hidden there that God will give, but because we're grateful for what God has done in our whole lives, every part of who we are is a response to his love and his sacrifice. And just to get really practical, okay, disciples tap into God's power in two really concrete ways, and they're in, they're in this passage. Now, they're hinted at, at least in this letter, and the first is the disciples pray. They pray. They pray for God's help to change. This whole passage is a, is a prayer. Paul wants believers to be filled with the presence of Christ, the power of his spirit, and he knows they need God's help to do that. He asks for strength in the inner being, in the heart, at the very core of who we are to be transformed. And is that the way we pray? Do we ask more for comfort than for endurance? Do we ask for our circumstances to change or for our hearts to change? More often than not. Disciples pray. Second, they repent from sin. Are we repenting from sin in our lives? 
Do we take time to meditate on and examine and identify sin in our lives, idols in our heart that get in the way of God's power? Because that's what they do. They get in the way. Everyone's journey to be a disciple begins with this kind of repentance. And it never stops. It is constant in the Christian life. It's not because God wants you to feel sorry for what you've done before you come to him. That's not why we repent. It's because you can't fully come to him. You can't fully experience him until you've understood that your primary need is for transformation. You'll always hold something back until you get that. That your sin is your biggest problem and it's only to the extent that we continually repent of our sin that we will experience God's presence and power in our lives. They always go together. Repentance and power. And if you're living with something that you know is wrong deep down and you've ever tried to pray to God as if everything is fine, then you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't work very well. Because he's, he keeps pointing you back to this thing. Disciples are always asking for God's help, his power in identifying sin and idols that would stop them from experiencing him fully. And disciples ask daily and hourly for his power because they know that being the kind of person that God wants us to be, they know that being the kind of person that we were designed to be is much more valuable than living the life we think we want. Much more valuable. And when we grow in our character like that, we are able to do this third thing, this third thing that Paul asks of all disciples everywhere. Disciples grasp his love, they ask for his power, and they long for his glory. They long for God's glory. And Paul ends his prayer this way. This is the climax of everything Paul has been saying up to this point in the whole letter. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, God's glory is what gets disciples up in the morning and it puts them to sleep at night. <laughs> and Paul can't, Paul can't help, he's such a strong, he can't help but bring it up. He gives, this, uh, he gives this benediction in the middle of his letter and then he keeps, he's not done. You save the benediction for the end, everybody knows that, but he can't help it. Now glory, glory is one of those words that we just don't use every day anymore and really, uh, it's, it's, it is a very complex idea in the Bible, but what it boils down to, I think, in this passage for us is two things. God's glory happens when his agenda, his plan guides your life. And when his reputation is the most important thing to you. His plan and his reputation. You see, we're all fundamentally, when you think of it that way, we're all fundamentally glory creatures, okay? Created with this in mind. Someone's glory is driving each and every one of us every day. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Everyone has an agenda. Everybody. Someone or something is telling you how to live your life. It could be you could be your need to please people driving you. could be your job performance. could be your culture. could be your peers telling you what to do. But somebody is. You're listening to somebody. Someone's telling you what's most important. And, and someone's reputation is most important to you. And most of the time, it's your own. It's my own. But someone's reputation is always driving you. And the growing disciple flips that on its head. God's plan first, even when it's hard, even when it's scary, and God's reputation first, even when it may harm our own. 
To him be glory in the church. Whatever our church does, you guys, our longing is that it would be God's plan guiding us as it's revealed in his word and that it would be his reputation that we're pushing forward. Not mine, not yours, not ours, his. That's who we want to be. When God's glory truly guides our lives, two amazing things happen. The first is... our vision for what's possible together grows to divine proportions. When God's glory is the most important thing, when we think God's opinion is the most important thing, our vision for what's possible grows to divine proportions. When we're working for God's glory and not our own, we ask for a lot more than we normally would. And God does does over and above what we ask or imagine. That's what Paul says. And if you're living for your own glory, your prayers will stay very small. God, help me get a good grade on this test. Help me do well on this project. Help me get through this hard day. And those are fine things to pray for, but our prayer should not end there. Our prayer life should grow bigger and bigger and bigger. When God's glory is our vision as disciples, we pray boldly because we ask for things that are close to God's heart, his glory, his agenda. We ask for his will in our workplace and to use us there. We ask for opportunities to serve in our community with the wisdom and resources and skills that he's given to us. Opportunities uh, to not simply, we pray not simply for our children to be safe, which is important, but that our children would grow to disciples, that they would be people who give their lives to meaningful things, even if maybe it doesn't pay very well. Our vision grows exponentially when God's glory is at the forefront. And the irony is, here's the real irony of this whole thing, when we live before an audience of one, If we live as if God's opinion is the most important thing about everything that we do, we get better at our jobs. We get better as students. We get better as spouses. We're better parents. Our skills and our influence increase when we stop thinking about ourselves so much. Not Not simply because seeking our own glory is wrong. It's because it's small. It's small. We want to be a church where our prayers and our concerns and our victories and our plans and our communication and our agenda is a reflection of God's glory and not our own. We want to be a church with a God-sized vision for what is possible in Kansas City. That's what we're excited about. And I cannot think of a better picture of what a disciple is, what a church can be. I can't. Don't think of that serious monk who has nothing to say about real life. Replace that with the picture that Paul paints here for us. Someone completely grasped by God's love. Someone empowered by God to journey through any circumstance and walk with anyone through any pain. Someone unafraid to take risks and step out in faith for God's glory because we've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Who doesn't want to be that person? I want to be that person. And here's the best part, seriously, the best part, the most beautiful part of this whole picture of being a disciple. Disciples are, on the one hand, extraordinarily powerful and influential people. When you get on God's team and you have his spirit, that is a very powerful life. But on the other hand, disciples are, at the very same time, wonderfully ordinary people, everyday people. 
These aren't super Christians we're talking about. Anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. They're ordinary people, but they are people who know the love of God, who ask for his resurrection power to transform them. And that is the power we're promised, a resurrection power to transform us. And they live for his glory and his plan. Ordinary people, people just like this, watch. Watch.